Welcome to Season 6 of Business Book Talk. Every week, we have a business book author talk about their book and discover why they wrote it. The conversations are casual in tone, but we try and dig a bit deeper into the subject of the book and discover the author's background and their core ideas. I'm sure you'll like this week's book, so let's get started. Hey, everybody. It's Bob again. I've got magic. Five keys to unlock the power of employee engagement. I've got Tracy Mailit, and uh, he was one of the authors, and there's a second author. So to start off the show, we're going to talk a little bit about Paul Warner. Uh, uh, that way he doesn't feel bad because uh, you know how it is. He has these calls from him. Man, you never talked about me. I was part of the book. <laughs> let's do it. So um, Magic, fascinating book. But before we get into the book, let's talk a little bit about you guys' background. What's, um, you know, Paul has a PhD. You've got an ED dot D dot. So we'll get into the translation of that as well. But what um, what's Paul all about? You know, Paul's real focus has been for us. And Paul handles a lot of the research piece here and uh, did a lot of the research for the book. It was really about understanding this massive amount of data that we had. We'll talk a little bit more about that as you and I proceed here. But uh, Paul's role was really gathering some of this data and help interpreting that. We had over 14 million survey responses that we gathered this data from. So that's no small feat to be able to pull that all together. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, and that's a lot of responses. Like you, you talk to some people and say, oh, what's your, your sample rate? And they say, oh, you know, at 100, 500, 1,000, 5,000. And then you jump to this massive number in this book. It just, my, my jaw, it's just, uh, right off the floor. Sure, this is, it's the largest of its kind, over 14.4 million survey responses. So this is not just something we pulled out of our hat that said, hey, let's, let's come up with a theory. It really is based on over 14 million survey responses. A lot of data, Bob. Well, how long did it take you to get that much data? Because that's not something that happens in a couple of days. No, we've actually been working on this book. Uh, you know, people ask us, how long did it take you to write the book? It took us about 18 years, to tell you the truth. This mm. is data that we've gathered over a long period of time. That 14 million survey responses, however, was a very concentrated period of about three years. <laughs> yeah, and that's an understatement, concentrated. <laughs> uh, I like the word understated. <laughs> um. So, you know, you've been doing, you work on the book, uh, putting all this data together, uh, develop, obviously developing your business and, and, and uh, moving stuff forward. Uh, why did you think uh, now is the time to bring the book out? Just because you were starting to see specific patterns, because there's been a primary shift in the market, or is just because now that you've got all this data together, it's like, you know, we can only collect data for so long, we should start sharing the information. That makes sense. You know, I'm not by nature a data nerd. Uh, we do have those folks on our team and we're glad to have them. They, they add tremendous value to this book. But uh, it really started, I'll be very, very honest here, it started out of anger to tell you the truth. <laughs> and, I, and I hate to admit that. And, and here's where it started. About four or five years ago, we started every seminar we would attend. And we're in the human resources industry, the organization development industry. Every every uh, Every situation, every conference, every webcast, every podcast that we would attend, we would we would hear them start out. And by the way, most articles start out this way when you read them. We, we kept seeing these statistics that would say seven out of eight of your employees are disengaged in their jobs or statistics such as less than 15 percent. Actually, the number that we kept hearing was 18 percent. Less than 18% of your employees are engaged and likely to be in, in contributing positively to the work environment. So as we were looking at this, it got us angry because common sense doesn't tell us that. So I'll give you an example. If you're walking down the hall, according to those statistics, 
what that means is that I'm walking down the office, walking down the workplace, and I have to pass seven people before I find somebody who was actively engaged in their job. And I looked at those numbers and thought, how can a business function that way? Could it even be realistic that an organization could have only 18% of their employees disengaged? And that didn't make sense. And the reason that is, is because we have backgrounds in industrial psychology, all right? So we study the way people think. And we looked at this and said, does that mean that only 18% of people wake up in the morning and say, I, I'm looking forward to going to work? Well, maybe that may be the case, but that means the other 70%, 80% plus of individuals. That must mean that they get out of bed and say, I hope my job is horrible today. <laughs> that's that, that's not human nature. You don't think that way. And so we looked at that and said, come on, that number is not right. Let's really dig into this and find out what this really means. Does it mean that seven out of eight people are disengaged? And the answer was very, very clearly no. So as we found that out based on those survey responses, we thought we need to get this message out because if we treat employees as if they're naturally disengaged, we're, we're going to have an environment that just festers that lack of engagement. So that's where it started from, from, from anger. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because I've um, I've been freelance, you know, 99.99% of my whole career and, and coming into organizations. That's one of the things that always drove me nuts because I'd come in, I'd be totally focused. I knew what my goals were. I would attack those goals. And then, you know, when I knew when I, when those goals were, were accomplished, then I got paid and I got to walk away from it all. Whereas everybody else, they were just on this treadmill that's like, well, I'll just do as much as I need to get done. I will, uh, you know, I, I'll, I'll go to these meetings, but gosh, they're a waste of time. There was not, nobody was energized except for usually the owner or uh, the entrepreneur uh, that was running the organization that they had a purpose. Everybody else was frustrated or like, gosh, why did I bother doing Because they just disassembled what I've been working on the last couple of weeks, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so um, I wanted to, to ask you, We've got like 80% of the workforce is disengaged. How many trillions of dollars is being lost every year because of that? That's an interesting question because we see all kinds of statistics that are out there. And the reason why I don't answer your question directly is because most of those statistics are not real. And I say that because a lot of those statistics are made up by, you, you can come up with anything you want to through numbers, we know that. But a, a good majority of those statistics are not realistic. So the numbers that are thrown out there that we're wasting X trillions of dollars or X billions of dollars or uh, productivity costs this much money in disengagement. You know, those numbers, I, I do believe very strongly we have a disengagement problem uh, around the world. But those numbers, uh, the, Bob, most of them are not accurate numbers. And so I can't give you an exact number. That said, there are a number of articles that are out there that do very, very clearly say that engagement is very, very much related to return on investment. Organizations with engaged employees do much better uh, financially. They lose a lot less employees, and particularly in a time like today when we really need to be focused on retaining and engaging employees, that becomes even more critical. But, you know, along those lines, one thing that's very important is as we look at those numbers and say the vast majority of employees are disengaged, we have to really look at the realistic piece of this. Number one, most of us don't want to naturally be disengaged. We want to engage. So when you walk into those environments that you were just talking about, those employees who are working in that situation that just kind of sucks the life out of you, that's not the natural state of human beings. Human beings don't naturally want to be disengaged. They want to engage. And so 
for some reason, environments, workplaces have created an environment that disengages or causes people to choose to be disengaged. So we had to look at that piece. And the second part of this is, really, do we have 80% of our employees disengaged? And this is where we flip a switch with this book and we say, you know, to tell you the truth, because most of us want to engage, we just have to do a few things that will cause an environment to happen where people will naturally want to be engaged. So that number of 80% of people being disengaged uh, is in most environments is not actually real. We don't find that in most work environments that we survey. Hmm. Well, do you think it's we've got this this disengagement and and, and lack of motivation and focus with a lot of people because um, the way that very very many of the organizations that are out there is still structured under the industrial revolution way of doing business? Absolutely, I think there's a big piece of this. There are a number of reasons. The first way is that when we when we go through school or we go through whatever type of training, we're taught to be leaders or managers. Often we're taught the idea that people aren't naturally engaged. You have to do something to engage them. And the reality is, is I as a manager can't engage you. If, if I come to work for you and you're my boss, you can't engage me. I have to choose to be motivated. You can create an environment in which I can choose to do that, but bottom line is it's still my choice. So the old industrial revolution treated people as if they were machines without any type of emotion or feelings. Um, That's not the way people operate. So what a manager can do is create an environment which people can choose to be engaged. So there's one piece. Second piece is we look at upcoming generations, and I'm I'm not one to to stereotype generations. I don't believe that all millennials behave this way or all baby boomers behave this way. But what we are dealing with today is a different environment than we were dealing with 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 our parents, you know, that could have been 25, 50, 70 years ago. It's a different environment that we're working in. And therefore, um, we're no longer engaged just by the idea that, hey, I'm coming to work to get a paycheck. We want other things. And that's what MAGIC is based on. MAGIC is actually an acronym that I'm sure we'll cover in just a moment that stands for Meaning, Autonomy, Growth, Impact, and Connection. And those are elements that we now demand out of our workplace versus just going and getting a paycheck. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the, the, the workspace today is just keeping up with technology and, and keeping up with the rapid change. You, you look at what happened 30 years ago, you could do something and you're, you're good for five years. But now you're good for six months and sometimes less. So it's, it's definitely a change environment that we're trying to um, swim in. And uh, things are, are shifting rapidly, not only for employees, but also for the organization and the economy and how people communicate better. So do you think that is a fundamental part of this disengagement because people are just spending so much time and energy trying to keep going or just trying to get to enough meetings? I think that's an, that's an interesting thought, an interesting pickup. Uh, yes, is the, <laughs> is the short answer. There's no question there. Um, in fact, as we looked at some of these organizations that are, are listed as best places to work, right? So we, we, we see organizations come out with the best places to work list um, annually. And we, we work with a number of these organizations. And as we look at them, it's interesting that some of these organizations that top the charts, you know, the top five organizations, best places to work, 
What's interesting in these organizations is that even though they may be a best, best place to work, the average lifespan of an employee in that organization, now I'm not talking average tenure to where we have some employees who have been there for 15 years and others leave after three months. I'm talking what is the average lifespan of a new employee if I join the organization. And we found, interesting enough, that even in those top five organizations or top 10, the average lifespan of an employee is between 16 and 18 months. So, you know, as, as great as that workplace may be, all these challenges and the rapid uh, changing environment and everything that's going on, uh, I, I still only last an average of about 18 months, even in those great organizations. So that says something very interesting is about the speed of change. Well, it also, you know, it, it, it you have to think about like what makes an organization the best place to be working in. Like there's uh, some places that pay more than anybody else and there's some that have a more open open work environment um and there's other places that spend a lot of time with education so if you go there you actually learn quite a lot of stuff about how to do your job um in the organize you know in the organizations that that you talk with and 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 work with which is the one that seems to be retaining people the most uh great question because you've hit on something that is one of the basic tenants or basic premises of the book. And that is the idea of perks. Perks don't motivate. And let me explain <laughs> what I mean. So I walk into an organization and a lot, of, a lot of times these best places to work will measure what type of perks do you have. Perks being benefits, perks being pay. Those things are basic elements that we need to maintain, obviously. We call those satisfaction elements, which is different than engagement. It used to be that 10, 15 years ago, we would receive telephone calls of organizations that would say, we have an employee satisfaction problem, or we would like to measure our employee satisfaction. Can you come do this for us? And that's changed over a long period of time. And the reason that is, is this idea of perks. So some of the organizations that we work with, um, you know, you walk in the break room and the break room is all kinds of fancy colors and you have a neat foosball table in there and a ping pong table and you have your, your free cereal dispensers and all kinds of things. It's, it's amazing what we see. We've seen organizations with nap pods. Uh, <laughs> Google has become famous because they will do your laundry for you. Uh, you know, transportation and, and dormitories to sleep and, uh, and things like this. Fantastic. Love the perks. It's wonderful. But one of the things that we found is that pay in itself, if, for example, I give an individual a bonus of $500, I'd love that bonus. Fantastic. But psychologically, through our research, we found that that bonus psychologically lasts only about two weeks. And then something else kicks in. And that's what we refer to as the adaptation principle. And the adaptation principle become, says, once we receive th something, we become used to that. So it's no longer a motivator for us, but I take that away, and all of a sudden that becomes a very much a demotivator for us. And so the reason I mention these things is because organizations come to us and they say, what perks do I need to add? What are those things that I need to do? Is it, is it about pay? Is it about, you know, is it about uh, a 35-hour work week? Is it about extending maternity leave? Is it about increasing minimum wage to whatever it is? Um, and without getting political here, one of the things that I, 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 we see very clearly is that because of the adaptation principle, people adapt and that no longer motivates. So we have to be careful that when we're not talking about, when we talk about engagement, we're not talking about those elements that are just satisfaction elements. Satisfaction elements include things such as compensation. Okay, so I don't become all of a sudden, if I was giving 100, if I were giving 100, 
percent before, and all of a sudden I receive a two percent raise. I'm not now going to give 102 percent. Okay, so satisfaction uh, pay is one of those compensation. Another one would be, for example, safety. All right, safety doesn't motivate me. I don't get excited to come to work because I'm going to be safe. But the minute you take that away from me, all of a sudden I become demotivated. Another one would be, uh, for example, tools. Uh, the tools and resources I need. I don't get excited because my computer works, but I tell you when that goes away, all of a sudden I, I become demotivated. So the reason I mentioned that and went into that long explanation is because that's one of the basic ideas of the book. That satisfaction elements, such as perks and things like this, they're cool to have. You have to have them and they need to be there for the base to be present, but they don't cause engagement to happen. And these organizations who are throwing lots of money into perks, you know, bottom line is it's cool, you need them, but they're probably wasting money after a period of time. Yeah, it's human nature. The more you give, the more that they want. And uh, you just got this spiral and, and that spiral can get out of control. What you really need is something that's ethereal, I think is the word. Basically, it's something you can't touch, which is motivation or, or like love. How, how, how do you... How do you make somebody love you? Well, you, you can't pay them to do that. Can't give them more perks. And a lot of people, a lot of people think that's true, but really, workforces that are on fire are ones where everybody that steps out of their car, or arrives on their bike, and jumps into the office. They are just loving what they're doing. It's giving their life better meaning. They're happier uh, when they come off of their. Um, of their their work schedule, a lot of times they'll they'll go past their work schedule, so that the the problem becomes like people are over motivated and say, "Dude, you got to go home," you know. <laughs> Get out of here. Exactly. So um, that you know that's a perfect work environment, and that's what all these organizations are are, are basically desperate to get a hold of and and that in itself is it's almost like a zen exercise it's like if you're thinking you're doing a zen exercises an exercise uh then you're, you you've lost the point what you just gave was a beautiful definition without probably even trying to do so of what engagement is it's that it's that environment where you choose to give your mind to your work first of all we, we call it there are four different components one of those is your mind you know i want i'm thinking about work i choose to think about it doesn't mean you have to do it on a sunday afternoon but while you're there your your mind's engaged the next piece is is your hands so this is i'm actually physically doing the work those are the do part of engagement, but there's also the feel part of engagement. The feel part is what you just described, and that is my heart's in my job. So I, I love doing what I'm doing. It's, it's a passion that's there. And the next piece is spirits. So you, we think team spirit. You walk into a, a major league ball game or you walk into a, even a high school game and you feel this team spirit. There's something that you feel when you walk in there. It's an excitement. It's a burning passion that exists. And those four elements, the, the mind, the hands, the heart, the spirits, that's what really um, encompasses engagement. And this book is, is based on the idea that there are five main keys of engagement. Um, we do talk about compensation, we do talk about perks, and those are necessary. But in order to create an engaged environment that you just described, those five keys, meaning autonomy, growth, impact, and connection, must be present. Well, I'm going to jump in here and, and, and uh, stir up the water a little bit. Out of those five keys, which is the, uh, I'm not going to say the most important, but which is the first that has to be in place to make all the other ones uh, fall after it? 
that's one of the beauties of engagement. One of the things that's most encouraging for most managers, they come to us and they say, all right, so what is most important? What do I need to create? Is it growth? Is it, is it meaning? Is it autonomy? What is that? And the answer is it depends. That's the typical consulting answer, right? It's an easy, <laughs> easy go-to. And here's your bill. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. I can't, uh, can't, I can tell you what the problem is, but I can't help you solve it. Right. Um, so that's one of the things that's very interesting about this model. It depends. So you mentioned that you've been working in kind of uh, in the environment that you work in right now. You're not going to a corporate office every day. And I'm, I would suppose, just in the short conversation we've had, that that's because you've chosen that. That's something that's important to you. So what's important to you, then I'm, I, I'm speaking on your behalf here, and I may be completely wrong, is of that those components, meaning autonomy, growth, impact, and connection, it sounds like that autonomy piece is important to you. It sounds like you would like to control the work environment in which you work. Um, is that accurate or not? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'm a control freak. <laughs> and, and, and autonomy is not all about control. It's, it's being able to uh, use your, your tools and, and who you are in a way that contributes most to what you do. So if you were to go work in a corporate environment with somebody that says, do this, do this, do this, it may not be as effective. So the reason why I've thrown you into this mix here is because uh, people are different. You know, so for some people, it's meaning. You know, uh, for me, maybe I want to go work in, in Africa and work with, with uh, and the, one of the examples we give in the book is a group of uh, individuals and doctors who have decided to spend their life working with um, pediatric AIDS patients, that they find meaning in what they do. You know, they may work in environments that are horrible, that are difficult to work in, but because they find meaning in their jobs, which is one of the keys, or impact in their jobs, you know, I feel like I'm making a difference. That's what's important to them. So an answer to your question circling back around is all of those are important. They must all be present. But for some people, some of those elements are more important than others. And they don't all have to start. We don't have to start with magic, uh, starting with the M and work our way to the C in connection. Um, they're not sequential. It is the idea that the more that those are present, the more I can be engaged in my role. You know, the, the more I'm listening to you, the, the more it sounds like if you go to work and it's your hobby, then you would be very satisfied. You know, it, it really is. The definition of a hobby is something you enjoy that you may or may not be good at and you don't really get paid for. Um, so when you turn that into a work environment, you're saying, I, I love what I'm doing and I get paid for it. Fantastic. You know, I can make a living off of doing what I'm doing. But again, going back to those, uh, for example, the folks who work with pediatric AIDS, um, you know, they're not getting paid lots of money. So pay is not a, a, what it's all about. It is doing something where I really feel like I'm making a difference. That's the, the meaning and the uh, impact piece of magic. Well, that's, I think, one of the hardest things for, for a larger organization to be able to do is the ability to give uh, people that autonomy in their workplace and enable them to kind of reinvent their role and still yet be able to work within a team and not make it very difficult to work in, in an environment of sharing. And uh, that, for me, I would think would be a very, very tricky thing. Well, it is. Um, and a lot of managers have the idea that autonomy is it's either always on or always off. So it's very dichotomous, very uh, polar environment to where I either have to give them complete freedom, which is chaos and anarchy, or I have to be very, very controlling and, and control every one of their moves. That's not what autonomy is about. A autonomy is not about chaos and complete anarchy. Autonomy basically says, I'm creating an environment in which you can make some choices. And those choices, for example, could be temporal choices. It can be when you work. 
it could be spatial. So, so where I work, do I work from home? Do, uh, what does my cubicle look like? Uh, whatever that it may be, it may be task. So you can you can choose to perform the task any way you want to, so long as it's operating with these parameters. But a lot of managers don't think that way. They think it either has to be one or the other. And instead of looking for ways to where we create some sense of autonomy, some sense of choice, we believe it's one or the other, and that's not correct. Well, it almost seems to me that you know, part of being able to get the magic system to work is having managers that comprehend what it is. I mean, it's almost like a lot of these things we're talking about. These sound fantastic. And then a manager comes in and kind of messes it all up for everybody. <laughs> you use the word ethereal. You know, a lot of managers do think that way. I love your use of that word because a lot of managers do think, yeah, this is really nice, but it doesn't really add to the bottom line. Well, it really does add to the bottom line, but you have to have to figure out how to do this. Yeah, you go. You got to believe in the system. You got to give the system a chance to to actually show some results. Um, but nine times out of ten, that you know, in an organization that's struggling, uh, you're never given that chance. And and it's actually, it's a self, it's a self defeating process where it's like, okay, we're going to try this new system. We try it, and it's, ah, we're not getting results fast enough. So let's give it up and go back to the old system. And everybody says, oh my god, guys, just stick with one. Let me try and work here. You just you're just wasting my time. Uh, oh yeah, absolutely. And one of the things I want to make sure that we're clear on is that. Magic is not a process. Magic is, um, it's not something we go into an organization and say, we're going to implement the magic system. It really is just keeping in mind that there are five key components that are important to everybody in any environment. And we just need to make sure those are kept in mind. So if you don't mind, let's, let's talk about those five and I'll explain in, in answering your question there and your comment. Absolutely. I mean, I was gonna, I was gonna bring that pretty soon, but uh, sure, let's go over all five of them, and uh, we don't have to go in any particular order. Obviously, um, the way you've got it written out spells out the word magic, hence the name of the book. But um, yeah, I mean, let's 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 talk about them, but then also let's talk about um, which one. And I know each organization is different, but which one are you discovering when you're working with clients and and organizations? Um, which one seems to click for more than most people? I love that question. As we go through here, um, let's let's I'll outline each one of these. Yeah, yeah. Go back and answer that question because I think it's it's key to what we're talking about. Mm. The first one is meaning. So meaning is having a sense of purpose beyond just the job itself. So when I go to work, it's not just to get my paycheck. It's because I'm I I want to make world different or I want to be different or I want to accomplish something for myself. Um, so meaning actually has two different components. One component is what we refer to as direct meaning and the other one is what we call associated meaning. So direct meaning is the job itself creates meaning in my life. So the easy example we have is uh, a doctor. So I go to work and the meaning that I receive is I save lives. So I receive direct meaning from what I do. Um, and we don't have to be physicians to make that happen, but I find meaning in what I do every day. There, uh, I enjoy helping organizations. I, I see I, purpose in what I do. The other part of meaning is what we call associated meaning. Now, sometimes we go to work and we do go and we collect our paycheck, but that paycheck allows us to do something that's important to us. So one of the things we found as we interviewed people in organizations is that um, meaning is absolutely critical, but for different reasons. So I may find an individual, This we found this all over the place, we found individuals that we interviewed that were working on assembly lines or doing something a lot of people would find pretty menial. 
um, not very exciting. So how would you find purpose just assembling this widget all the time? And one of the things we found is maybe the job itself wasn't what was creating meaning, but it allowed me to do something that was important to me. I, for example, may have been working on this assembly line for the last 15 years, but I'll tell you what. Yeah, I do the same thing every day, but I find meaning in it because it allows me to send my daughter, who's the first generation college student, to college. It allows me to do something important. So we have found of all these keys, meaning sense teams seems to be the one that keeps people on their job or causes people to leave their job, an important one. The next one is autonomy. And autonomy is the ability to choose to create your environment in, in such a way that you can use uh, your best self. So that means um, I can choose how to perform a task in a way that will, will lead to the best result. Now, um, sometimes we just simply can't have different types of autonomy. I'll use that physician example again. You know, if I'm an emergency room physician, I can't say, you know, I'm only going to work from 11 o'clock in the morning to 1.30 in the afternoon. And by the way, you need to come to my house. Uh, you, you don't have that level of autonomy. So sometimes you know, we, ha we, we have a, a trade-off on some of these various keys. The next one is growth. Growth is an interesting one because it says basically I'm better tomorrow than I, than I was today or yesterday. The opposite of this is stagnation. And the reason why this one is so important, particularly today, is we're seeing a lot of today's generation. And again, when I say generation, I'm not just talking about millennials. I'm talking about everybody that happens to work today. This is the working generation. Um, one of the biggest reasons, if not the, the biggest reason that people are leaving their work environment today is to find opportunities to grow. So they may go down the road and what we hear is that they've left for another 25 cent raise. In all actuality, the likelihood they've left of them leaving was because they're looking for opportunities to be better and to learn. So that's the growth piece. The next one is impact. Impact is one that says it's very similar to meaning, except that this is the result. So I actually see results of something that, that matters to me. Uh, do you mind if I share a quick personal story on this one? Because this is one that I love. Yeah, absolutely. As we were presenting to a group of about 400, 450 people in this room, and uh, it was a medical facility, a teaching hospital, and just great, great people. Very, very smart, very intelligent group as they were in there. And they were made up of physicians and nurses and all different areas of the hospital, environmental and dietary and everything you can think of had gathered there. And these were the managers and leaders. And we stood up and we were talking about magic and we were talking about impact. And we were saying, you know, one of the reasons why you go to work is because you make a difference. And particularly in healthcare, you're making a difference. You can see the results of what you do. And one of the people on the front row, uh, she raised her hand and says, I'm a nurse. So I get the, the impact thing and I get the meaning thing. Um, I, I love doing what I'm doing. I, I feel a sense of purpose in what I do, and I see results. I see patients get better, and I see things happen. She says, so I can understand that, but what about these people that work in, for example, housekeeping and environmental that are cleaning up messes? Um, what about these people who basically work in the kitchen and serving up meals and things like that? This, they're not physicians. They're not nurses. So what about impact for these folks? And there was a woman in the back of the room, and she stood up, and she raised her hand, and we couldn't help but, but see her. She got very, very animated, and all the voice of a preacher stood up there, and she said, um, you know, I work in dietary. She says, I can answer your question. So dietary is the group that gives you your meals, and she said, I can answer that question for you. She said, you know, most of the time, 
these patients come in here and then they're in the worst state of their lives. They're in bad situation. They're not in the, their best, certainly, and they've probably done nothing but gone through tests and treatment and heard bad news all day. She says, I'm the one bright spot that comes into their room three times a day and takes care of them and sits down and talks to them. And I don't talk to them about their medical condition. I talk to them about how they're people. And I give them a meal and it lifts them up and they get excited. And the people that are in the room look forward to my visit. She said, now that's impact. And she sat back down and everybody in that room, all 450, stood up and gave her a standing ovation and clapped for her. Loved that example because it shows that anyone can have impact in their job if they choose to do so. The last one is connection. Connection is a sense of belonging to something greater than just myself. So I can be connected in various ways. I can be connected socially to the people that are around me. I, I love working with the people that I work with. In these 14 million uh, survey responses that we received, we found that connection was a number one reason why people stayed on their jobs. It's because I like the people that I work with. But connection can also be a sense of belonging to the mission of the organization. Or, for example, we use this all the time, the, the Disney cast members. I work at Disney, and not only do I work at Disney, and I'm integrated with Disney, but I'm not only a part of Disney, Disney is a part of who I am. So a lot of people are connected to the organization they work with. So meaning, autonomy, growth, impact, and connection. To answer your question then, which one of these is most important? Uh, the answer is it really depends on the individual. And one of the things that we find very clearly in organizations that each one of these has a different meaning or different importance to that particular organization. I wanted to ask you, you know, you, you've been obviously working on this a long, long, long time. You know, when you were taking it from the surveys and, and um, collaborating with, with your co-author and, and putting the book together, for you personally, what was your aha moment where something really crystallized for you? I'll have to say is we were putting things together and we, we, we did this the right way. So we didn't look at, at a, a clever acronym and say, how can we use data support to support something that came up with the word magic? We actually had seven different keys and realized that, hey, there are really only five. And just by curiosity, they happen to spell magic. The big aha for me was as we started applying this in organizations and started to see it work. We were writing the book and I popped on an airplane. And as I hopped on this airplane, I saw a person in front of me. He got on the airplane and he had this, this shirt on. And the shirt said, I'm part, of an, I'm part of a team building the world's largest indoor coliseum. So I looked at that and thought, that's interesting. I liked it, you know, a little bit of curiosity here. And so I sat behind this, this gentleman. So I reached over and I tapped him and I said, um, I got to know. So tell me, first of all, what's the indoor coliseum? And he explained it was in the Philippines. So I was fascinated. And then, then he just started talking for the next, I bet it was probably 35, 40 minutes that he just started talking to me about the stadium and how excited he was about it. And I, I looked at this gentleman. And I said, wow, this is an engaged person. And he started talking to me about the structural engineering that went on and the sound system and just got so excited about this. And so I said, I supposed he was some type of engineer, by the way, he was speaking electrical engineer. And I said, so what is it you do exactly? And he said, well, for the next 90 days, I'm going to be going around and I will be screwing on switch plates on all lights. So basically, he's the guy that goes around with these electrical plug-ins or the electrical light switches and turns one screw and puts on that switch plate all day long for the next 90 days. <laughs> and I thought, wow, that would be a difficult job to, for me to get engaged in. Yet this gentleman was very engaged. 
And I, I looked at that point in time and I realized that this is a gentleman who chose to be engaged. And what was really important to him was meaning and connection. He felt like the job meant something. What he was doing was part of a, a team. He was connected to this team. And I looked at that and thought, even some of these jobs that many of us would say would be menial jobs or some that wouldn't excite some people. There are individuals who can find meaning in their roles. They can find engagement in what they do. And what really was this turning switch for me as I was writing this was that example that I sat down and realized that this doesn't just apply to upper level people who are at the top of the organization like you and I talked about at the first of this interview. It really can apply to every employee and that engagement is a matter of choice and we can choose to be engaged. The organization has 50% of the responsibility for engagement by creating an environment where people can choose to be engaged, but the individual also owns 50% of that equation, and this individual owned his own engagement. That's when it all came together for me. Yeah, that's very, very interesting because, you know, it, it's pride of work, pride of the job you do, regardless of what that actual job is, whether you're CEO of a multinational or you're the guy uh, doing deliveries in the in the truck. It, it's, it's you're proud of what you do. You love what you're doing. You're in your niche and you don't really care who, what, what other people think about you. You care about how you feel about your job and and that reminds me so much of what it was like uh, living in Japan um, that's a whole nation that thinks that way and what happens um, if you have everybody in organization working on that level working in that organization becomes a very nice place to work because everybody cares so if you've got a cafeteria the food is actually very very good and the, the it's it's well organized and people clean up after themselves and Everything seems to work so much better, even on the mundane level. But it, it you get a fundamental shift with your attitude. And that's what happened when I was working in, in uh, Tokyo. It, it was like I would come to work and I was on fire because everybody else was so earnest about doing their thing. And it's, it's, it's an addictive thing. It's a wonderful thing to get caught up in. And I think having organizations that can do that um, can make a fundamental shift not only in that organization, but in the industry itself. And that's the power and the importance of these type of books and, and this type of thinking is the ability to educate and get people to get it and become very um, engaged and focused on what they're doing, not for pride or anything like that, just because it feels right. I think that's a beautiful summary. That's that's exactly what this is all about. We know what engagement looks like when we fill it. Uh, unfortunately, some of us don't fill that. Engagement is a choice, and this is the way we end all of our, our webinars or when we're out presenting and even the book. Engagement is a choice. The organization can create an environment where people can choose to be engaged, but ultimately it's the individual that has to make that choice of whether I'm engaged or not. This book doesn't doesn't put the put the onus on the organization per, for part of it certainly but the individual has that ultimate choice i have to choose to engage hmm. let's say you you you've uh, you know you, you've read the book or you've done some research in this direction where's a good place for people to go to learn more well there are a couple things first of all this this book is available in any 
major outlet. Um, we've, it's been a very successful book. So I would I always recommend starting with a book. It's an easy read. It's one that doesn't have to be read straight through. You can go through different examples. And I think it resonates with all different levels. So that's where I would certainly start. We also have a resource that we, we, we put out a lot of resources that are at no cost. Um, those can be accessed. We do have a, a website that is engagementmagic, all one word, dot com, engagementmagic.com. On that website, there's a there's a no cost assessment that you can take to, to kind of measure your own engagement and say where I'm where am I in terms of my own engagement and those results will be emailed directly to you so you have those results. But we do have a lot of resources that are there. But the biggest piece is really once you understand engagement, kind of look at yourself and understand that idea that I have to choose to engage. You'll find all kinds of resources there on that website and uh, also our our corporate website, which is decisionwise. Com. It's decision-wise.com. We have all kinds of resources that are available there for you. The idea here is one of our missions is to create environments where organizations and people are engaged. So there are some good starting points. Now, before we wrap it up, you know, this word engage, engagement, uh, being focused, wanting to do it, all those those actionable words. A big part of this book is part three, which is, you know, how to grow engagement. For the people that are listening, what's something that they can do today to start the ball rolling for more engagement? A lot of this involves a mind shift, a mind shift change. Um, The book does have, at the end of each one of the chapters, it has some ideas for managers. And there's an idea that we throw one out that we call an engagement interview. So most managers sit down with employees and say, all right, so here's how you're performing, et cetera. But very few actually create what's called an engagement interview, where I sit down and ask employees questions such as, tell me about a good day at work. What does that look like for you? And you'll find some interesting answers that come from those employees that tell you a lot about their engagement. And then you ask the question, tell me about a bad day at work. What does that look like for you? And you'll find some interesting questions in that book that a manager can ask. So in answer to your question, one of the things that organizations and and managers can do is just just ask some questions. Uh, We do a lot of work on engagement surveys to find out what's going on. We do a lot of teaching one-on-one with managers on how to sit down and have conversations with their employees. But that's what I would start with. I would say the answer to that question is very simple one word, and that is ask. Just ask your employees. Mm. Well, and then, and you know, ask and then listen. Absolutely. There's nothing worse than asking and then not listening or asking and then not following up. doesn't mean you have to do everything they ask, but they just need to feel like they're being listened to. And then you're going to find some neat ideas. Act on those ideas. Yeah, and, and you know, that I think works all the way through an organization and then outside of an organization if you want to build up your brand um, equity a little bit too is, is have the people that are interfacing, uh, you know, with B2B or B2C is ask clients and then listen and then execute can make a huge difference between that relationship as well. There's no question. We're actually working on an, so uh, spoiler alert here, we're working on another book that will be released here in Q4 this year. And the idea behind that is that we create these expectations with our employees and with our customers. And organizations today are out focusing on this idea of the, the customer experience. Well, what they're missing is as they start attacking the customer experience is they're missing to understanding the idea of the employee experience first. My interaction with the company is not an interaction with the company. It's an interaction with those employees of that company. And if 
the the level of experience I'm going to have with that employee that I'm talking to on a call center or whatever that is, is directly related to the experience that employee has in his own organization or her own organization. If we take care of our employees and, and it's we focus on the employee experience, they're going to be treating our customers right. So ultimately, if we're trying to improve the customer experience, let's focus on the employee experience because it's going to translate directly into the customer experience. Now, to bring it all the way back around to the beginning of the show, what would Paul have to say? Uh, it's interesting because Paul is very much focused on the customer experience itself. So one of the things that as we started writing this book that was became very clear is that, you know, if we really want to focus on customer experience and we want really want to create a great customer experience it really does boil down to what i just said let's let's make sure that we're creating a great internal um, employee experience which translates into taking care of the customer well it sounds exciting that uh, you've got another book that's actually one of my favorite topics as well so we'll have to have you come back later in the year or early for season seven love to do it this has been a delight i appreciate the opportunity well i appreciate it too We've been talking about magic, five keys to unlock the power of employment engagement. I've had Tracy to chat with, and Paul was the co-writer. A great book, well worth picking up. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the show. And don't forget to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. Like us at Facebook forward slash Business Book Talk. Follow the host on Twitter at Bob Garlic. Visit the website businessbooktalk.com for show notes and lots of other great interviews. See you next week.